Oh, I was a captive, sin had sentenced me to the grave. Desperate and weary, helpless for the rest of my days, until you came, and now I receive all that you've done for me. You stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me, and now the debt is paid. The cry of the ransom that now the debt is paid. So this is my story. I will never carry that weight. No, I won't, Lord. Now and forever, every single sin is erased. Because of your grace, you stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me. And now the debt is paid, and I will sing with the abandon the cry of the ransom. And now the debt is paid. Cause you stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me. And now the debt is paid. And I will sing with abandon the cry of the ransom. And now the debt is paid. Oh, death is defeated. Forever defeated. Oh, death is defeated. Thank God my debt is paid. Oh, death is defeated. Forever defeated. Oh, death is defeated. Thank God my debt is paid. You stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me. And now the debt is paid. And I will sing with abandon the cry of the ransom. And now the debt is paid. Because you stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me and now the debt is paid and I will sing with abandon the cry of the ransom that now the debt is Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good morning. Thank you. You are amazing, a God who's unchanging, always unfailing, the beginning. 
beginning and the end, you are amazing. You are God before there was time, and you are God right here in our lives, and you will always be our God. The mountain trembles and the sea stands still at the mention of your name. All glory and honor, all glory and honor and praise be unto your name. All glory and honor and praise be unto your name. You are amazing, our God who's unchanging. You're always unfailing, the beginning and the end. You are amazing. Your beauty, oh, and your beauty is beyond compare. Your love, it never fails. Your grace falls down like rain. All glory and honor, all glory and honor and praise be unto your name. All glory and honor and praise be unto your name. You are amazing, our God who's unchanging. You're always unfailing, the beginning and the end. You are amazing. Oh, God, you are amazing. Sing it out, hallelujah. Oh, and hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, God. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah, oh hallelujah, God. Oh hallelujah, 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 God. You are amazing, I got unchanging, you're always unfailing, the beginning and the end, oh, and you are amazing, I God who's unchanging, you're always unfailing, the beginning and the end, you are amazing. Oh, God, you are 
Good morning, everybody. Isn't it great to have air conditioning? It's about, it is about this time, it's a, it's a miracle is what it is. Th it is about this time of the year that I begin thinking your grandparents were tougher than we even realized. I mean, between the mosquitoes and the heat, I just don't know. I, Man, wow. They were tough. Do you remember growing up without air conditioning in your vehicles? Even in Southern California, we go through the desert. I remember the first time we got air conditioning. We had those. We had one of those uh, those uh, wagons in Southern California. The wood, fake wood paneling on the side. The LTD, I think, were Fords, and uh, we had the seats that faced out to the back. And I would throw up every time I'd ride in that. <laughs> but and it wasn't safe because they didn't have um, seat belts. How did we survive? I don't know. Miracle. It's a miracle. Let's say that. We, it's a miracle that I'm even here. How come? What happened to you? I lived through the 70s. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That has nothing to do with this morning's service. Anyway, welcome to Carpenter's Way. Glad to have you here. It's good to have you back. Hey, thanks. All the way from Alaska. Alaska. I almost said Australia, mate. <laughs> That's funny. It's close. It had an A. It's a country. <laughs> it's a thing. Anyway, it gets cold there. But uh, it's, it's good to see you back. We've had a ton of families go to Alaska this year. So next year for the month of June, we're going to just shut down the church. We're all going to Alaska. Let's go. That's right. That's right. So you need to give a lot, a lot, okay, because, because we're going to pay for the trip together. <laughs> anyway, I hope, I hope that you're able to get away this summer and, and be on vacation. And, and when you are, you can log in and watch us live. We have a lot of people watching online. And, and, and so you can, you can continue with our study. And, and, uh, but it's good to have you here this morning. If you're watching on the Internet, thanks for being with us today. It's our hope and our prayer that you're encouraged having been with us. I know we have some new people here. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. If you see somebody you don't recognize, uh, just shake their hand, hug their neck, and uh, ask them. I know it's always embarrassing. Have I met you before? Just say, how long have you been with us? And they'll say, it's our first week. And you go, oh, that's why you look new and, and stuff. But I, I usually meet people 12 to 1,500 times. So, um, but anyway, welcome. This is a, man, this has been a big couple weeks. We had VBS two weeks ago and our, our preteen camp this last week, and God worked there. They had a phenomenal week with Clear, and then tomorrow morning at 6.30, our student ministry takes off for Colorado, and so we ask that you pray for them for their travels in the worship guide is an orange uh, insert. Um, every three or four years, Jeff uh, Bonin, who oversees our student ministry, and Mark Dubose, who helps him with that, uh, take our kids uh, and their staff to Colorado for this. This is, man, they live in tents, and uh, they whitewater raft if they're able, if it's safe, and they do adventure stuff, so... Uh, and they talk about God a lot, and it's uh, it's great to get the kids away from their phones and their TVs, and and uh, these are the people going. So would you please put this on your uh, somewhere in your house in your car, and would you pray for these kids by name and the staff as well that God will keep them safe and keep them well, and that they will hear from Him. Uh, it is such a significant thing. So please, please, please be praying for that. Um, would you open your worship guides? I have a few things that I want to highlight. Um, if, if your student is not going to Adventure Camp, uh, uh, there is a, not a second win this week, they can come in here and listen to me teach. What a blessing. I don't know why you're laughing. I was serious. That was my <laughs> whatever. Anyway, uh, so, so I just want to highlight that. And then also other things of, of, of that are going on right now. We are changing over in the office the, uh, the software program that we use for our church administration. Uh, and there's a note in the upper right-hand corner that uh, if, you, if you give 
uh, you get envelopes, and some of you have said, I don't need the envelopes, I'll just use them from the worship guide. You may start getting those again, so if you'll, uh, just because of the, uh, some of the information didn't transfer over, so will you let us know in the office if you do, and we will make sure that that change is made. Um, I think that that does it for the announcements right now. Um, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Uh, as they come, I just want to remind you, if you're visiting, we ask that you not give. This is for those of us who attend here regularly. We agree on a budget every year in November, and uh, that budget not only includes our staff and our, our facility here, but we support uh, the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Their missionaries, there's like 5,000 missionaries global that we support, as well as 14 mission agencies that we support personally as a church. We're very involved with missions. That's what this goes for. And uh, so, you know, that's where our money is spent. Um, I do uh, want to, th again, thanks for visiting. Don't give. Uh, those of us who attend regularly, uh, this is the kind of year things slow down. This is that time of the year. So we'd ask you to participate. Make sure you're faithful in your giving so we can continue to uh, do the things that God has called us to do. Um, I'm going to pray and commit the rest of our service to the Lord. Um, Father God, thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning and, and serving you and worshiping together and learning from you. And I thank you uh, that, they can, that folks can do it online. I thank you they can do it in this room. And it is our prayer that we would be encouraged spiritually having gathered together today. Father, um, thank you for the Gospels that tell us about you. And, and uh, as we continue to search who, who you are based upon how you've revealed yourself to us, I pray that today would give us some more insight into that. Father, I pray for those that are vacationing and those I know we have some folks at funerals today and are traveling around to be with family. Please keep them safe. We pray for our students tomorrow as they take off and we keep pray that you would keep them and the staff safe and that the vans would run good. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would remove all the distractions, that the kids would hear from you and the staff would hear from you. Lord, we thank you for the 25 years we've been here. Thank you for how you have provided for us financially in the past and with people. And we pray you continue to do that. And we will be careful to point people to you in all that we do. So, Lord, bless those who give this morning. May it be a part of our worship from the deepest places in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One thing Mark likes to say a lot is um, we meet here because we can't fit in the living room. So this morning, a uh, little bit more of a living room feel. Uh, if you guys want to stand, you can. Um, obviously, we're sitting because you can't play an acoustic set standing up. It's a little known fact. Um, but yeah, if you want to stand, you can. Uh, if you want to stay seated. Uh, but the biggest thing, let's sing. Let's sing together as a family. Once a sinner, now I'm clean. Once condemned, now I'm made free. He turned my darkness into light, and now I see. Once in ashes, there's beauty. Once in pieces, I'm complete. My Redeemer now resides. He lives in me. Amen. Oh, He is alive, and I am bound to death no more. Oh, he 
Jesus Christ, always secure. Where the Lamb of God wants laid, there's victory in an empty grave. And now with resurrection power, oh, I will sing. Yes, I will sing, oh, 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 He is alive, and I am bound to death no more, oh, oh, oh He is alive, in Jesus Christ, always secure. Death is defeated. Oh, and death is defeated. Hope is eternal. Jesus is alive. Oh, and raised to life now by great mercy. Jesus is alive. Oh, and death is defeated. Hope death no more. He is alive in Jesus Christ, always secure. Amen. Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. O oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. I want to climb. To the peak of the mountain, to the feet of the Father, and see with my eyes, I want to rise from the death of this pain that surrounds me 
first, first verse again. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the Trinity. Thank you that you are a triune God. We thank you that the Father is seated at the throne, that, the whole, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is sitting next to him praying for us, and that you have implanted with us as your children the Holy Spirit who prays on our behalf and coaxes us on and encourages us and convicts us, Father. Thank you. Thank you for being so deeply involved in our lives. Oftentimes, personally, I forget you're there. I go about my day doing the things that I think are best, and it doesn't take long for you to remind me that you are the author of my days, that I may set my step, or I, I, may, I may choose the path, but you set my step. And so I pray, Father, this morning for that. As I've studied this week, Lord Jesus, I've, I've, I've set a path. I've learned a lot. But now I ask you, Father, to set our steps. All that study means nothing if it's not empowered by your Holy Spirit. So I ask you to speak to us today. Whether the people are in this room or watching at home or on the road listening, it is our prayer, Father, that you would change the hearts of your people and draw mankind to yourself. So do those things in our lives today. We give you permission to reign. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated if you're standing. Nobody's standing, so I said that for no reason. The Scriptures are actually, from the beginning to the end, they're a story. It tells the story of history about how God has sought a relationship with mankind. That's the story. He has been seeking a relationship with people even after being rejected or ignored by those people. Carefully, intentionally, with forethought, he has continually introduced himself to mankind throughout all time. In the Garden of Eden, God would take walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, Scripture tells us. Basically, in the next part of the story, he begs Cain not to sin. God's interaction with Egypt through Moses before and during the plagues is God introducing himself, the Scriptures tell us, to mankind, Hebrew people, Egyptians, and people throughout the world. The Hebrew nation itself was birthed with the purpose of introducing mankind to God by showing what it looks like to be blessed by God if you worship Him. God sent Jonah, a Jewish prophet, to the Ninevites. He sent John to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. And then, of course, He sent Jesus. The second member of the Trinity took on human form and for three, uh, 33 and a half years walked to the earth and for three and a half of those, Emmanuel, dwelling among us, proclaimed why he came, 
why he was sent and what the purpose was for his being here. All of those stories of Jesus. Well, listen, listen to what John 20, verse 30 and 31 say. You can look at it on the screen. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones we've recorded in this book. But these were written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. And so, it is within that context that we go to the Scriptures to discover who God is within their historical context to once and for all discover specifically during this study who is this man that all of us have talked about our whole lives in the Bible Belt. Who is Jesus, not as our pastor portrays him or as our our favorite author or musician portrays him, but who does Scripture say, authored by God through humans, who does Scripture say that Jesus Christ actually was? There's a lot of noise out there, even inside of the church, a lot of misunderstanding. And the only way to get through all the fog of, of talk is to actually get back to Scripture. From the testimony of those who walked and lived with him to his testimony about himself. Jesus was not shy as to who he was. And in the next two weeks, this this morning we'll start that discussion. But this story we're going to be in this morning is actually going to take us two weeks to get through. Because in next week's part of this story, you're going to hear Jesus. He's setting it up through this week's part. But next week, he's going to explain in the temple grounds on a holy holiday who he is with no ambiguity. If you are a Jehovah's Witness and you want to follow that thinking, you do not want to be part of the study. If you have your own idea about Jesus and you don't want to know who he really is, you do not want to be part of the study. Because if you, as we ended last week, if you are conservative by nature, Jesus is too liberal for you. If you are liberal by nature and politically, Jesus is too conservative for you. The reality is Jesus is not on our side. The question is, are we on his side? The same question that was asked of the, of the Hebrew nation. The problem is, we find ourselves adding our philosophy of life, grabbing a verse from here and there out of their context in order to make God the champion of our cause. And that is not the truth. may make us feel good, but it's not the truth and it won't give us eternal life. And so this morning we find ourselves in our journey. And for those who haven't been with us, what we're doing to discover who is this man is we're actually taking all four Gospels. We're doing our best we can to put them in chronological order. Let me talk on that for a second. It's not as simple as you think because of the four Gospels, only one of the authors, Luke, actually tried to put it in chronological order. The others did not. The others take the stories they experience walking with Jesus and they put them in order in order to make a point, to teach a lesson. To, make a, to, to, to conceptualize something. Luke, on the other hand, is writing a historical document that starts in the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke explaining who Jesus was so that he could write the book of Acts and explains who the church is because we believe that what he was writing, he was writing to a man named Theophilus who we believe was a Roman governor or a leader who thought that the Christians were a threat. And so he's writing him to explain that Christianity was not a threat. It, out, it grew out of God sending himself to the earth to, to redeem mankind, and the growth from that was Christianity. And so we have a historical book. So the book of Luke attempts to keep it in chronological order. But here's the other difficulty. Not all four Gospels tell all the same stories. Each of them are impacted by different experiences and things. So 
what we're doing in our study here is we're trying to take the four Gospels, do the best we can, historically and theologically, to put the stories in order and go through it. Now, why I say that is because I want you to understand that we don't exactly know what happened on day three of, of year number two of Jesus' ministry, but we do know the season of the ministry. So we kind of have a concept of what's going on. Um, I am actually using the life application model of the chronological life of Jesus. You may have one in your Bible, or you may have read one that puts this story here or differently. That's okay. What we are clear on is, is the seasons in which these happen. So we find Jesus about a year into his ministry, a year to a year and a half. You will recall from our recent studies uh, that Chad took us through before he went on this uh, wicked, expensive vacation to see no orcas. I'm not mad about that. But, they, but, but uh, he took us through some stories that tell us some things that's happened. You recall that it was soon after uh, Jesus goes to the wedding of Cana that he actually ends up in Jerusalem for the Passover, and that's the first time he turns the tables over. They've turned it into uh, his father's house into a marketplace, he said. He's going to do it again later at the end of his uh, ministry, three, a little over three years into it, right before his crucifixion. He's going to then call him the den of thieves. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. But he turns it over, upsetting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, you recall that that week he stays in Jerusalem, he commits some miracles while he's there, he starts drawing a crowd, and it's one of those nights that John 3 takes place. Do you remember John 3? Because of verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. You know this verse. Well, that happens because a guy named who was a, the prominent religious leader, Nicodemus, comes to him at night to try to forge a relationship between Jesus, this radical rabbi, and the Jewish religious leaders. They're seeing his miracles. The crowd are beginning to follow him. They don't know what to do with him. So he comes at night, try to make peace. Jesus cuts him off mid-conversation and says, look, bottom line, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoa, that blew Nicodemus' mind. So Jesus goes on to explain that. After that, he ends up leaving that re region because the religious leaders begin to harass him. He goes back to his home, uh, his home region to make a long story short. We've been studying all this each week. You can go back on the Internet and watch it. But the religious leaders send religious spies to follow him. And what they try to do is shame him. They try to undermine his teaching by having people appear, these Pharisees, these, uh, these uh, religious people, these rabbis. They would follow him around, and after he teaches or after he does something, they would pretend to want to learn from him by asking questions that would shame him. But Jesus is pretty smart, and he takes them on pretty well. You recall in one of the stories that Chad taught, taught us some of the things, uh, a recent story uh, where these religious spies are watching him forgive the sin of a paralyzed man, and then Jesus heals him. This offends them, and they confront Jesus on forgiving sin. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus basically says, that's true. That's why I forgive sin. Second of all, they watch him invite the turncoat Jewish tax collector named Levi or Matthew to be one of his disciples, and then he parties with them in the, in the going away party that Matthew throws. He's leaving tax collecting, and he's going to start following Jesus, so he throws a going away party with all of his other tax collectors, they, and Jesus attends it. And the disciples, who Scripture tells us are outside, are confronted by the religious leaders, these spies, saying, why does your master hang around with the scum of the earth? Remember, Chad taught us that. Great story. Jesus, respond, or Jesus responds, I didn't come to heal people who think they're healthy. I came to heal the sick. This offends them. Then in last week's text, you remember that uh, the, these religious spies come and confront Jesus because his disciples don't keep their Jewish disciplines enough. And it's not just the religious Jews now, but it's also joined by John the baptizer's friends. 
his followers, so they confront Jesus because they don't fast. They don't keep the religious laws. This really offends them. Which brings us to today's story, a continuation of this idea. John chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holidays. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Beth- uh, Bethesda, sorry, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, they lay on porches. If you were to visit Jerusalem today, in the section of the ancient city near what the, where, where the sheep gate is, you would see a large excavation still going on to this day. That excavation is the pool area of, of uh, Bethesda. I keep, I'm killing the name. I kept, keep wanting to say Bethsaida, and it's not. It's Bethesda. You will see where they're ripping it up. Actually, excavation tells us that there's more than one pool. There were two pools. And history tells us that around these pools, sick people would gather. They would gather in droves. The story opens. We see Jesus once again going for a holy day into the city of Jerusalem, which would take place at the temple. But instead of going directly into the temple, he goes to this pool. I find it interesting that this is the only place in John, a side note, where it doesn't tell us which holy day. Jesus participating in Jewish religious activity, though, is not a unique experience. In fact, in our study, we've already seen Jesus go to a Jewish wedding. I know there's a lot of confusion today about weddings. Let me be clear. The weddings of the Bible are not just weddings. They're sacred events, okay? This is where I think Christians forget this. There is a difference between a secular wedding and a, and a sacred wedding. Get your minds around it. it, it uh, we'll talk about that a different day. But the fact, is, the fact is that these were sacred events. They were very religious events. They were Jewish events. They were ordained by God, and, and the planning of them worked by God's direction. Within the Gospels, we find Jesus participating in, the fast, uh, in Passover in Jerusalem on four different occasions. We find him celebrating the religious Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is going to celebrate Hanukkah, or at the time it's called the Feast of Dedication. And then, one thing you know is Jesus spent a lot of time in synagogues. In fact, he taught a lot in the synagogues. Although it's not important for our text this morning to know what holy feast Jesus is celebrating in this chapter, it's important to note that Jesus honored Judaism. It's important to note that he did not come, no matter what I've said or any other pastor, Jesus did not come to overthrow Judaism or religion. He came to do what none of it could, and that is to offer permanent forgiveness by paying for people's sins. Please please get your mind around this. Jesus is not against being Baptist. He's not against being Jewish. What he is against is any of us believing that being that saves you. That's that's a false idol. That's a false God. And as we keep working through this, I want you to understand that that just like Jews had done, and you're going to see this in the story, we Christians set up false idols. Like, for instance, would you like to go to heaven when you die? Well, then pray this prayer and you get heaven. Just so you know, God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross so you could go to heaven. He sent Jesus so that he could adopt you into his family. This was always about a relationship, and that's not just a turn of phrase. This was not about making churches. Churches are an outgrowth. It's where the family of God gather. It's a gathering in the power and name of the Holy Spirit. This is what the church is. A church is not what you do. It's not a verb. It's a noun. It's a family. It's it's an organism that grows out of birth in Christ. This Jesus did not come to overthrow any religion. He came to do what none of them could. 
And that was prophesied in the Scriptures from even as far back as Moses and the prophets. They constantly talked about God coming and taking away the sin of the world. In Genesis, early Genesis, God said that uh, actually right after Adam and Eve sinned, God told Eve that, I, that through your offspring, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush Satan's head. We're going to overcome. And then all the way early as Abraham, he says, through your line, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Salvation is not through Judaism or Baptist or baptism. It is not through being Assemblies of God member or speaking in tongues. Salvation comes through Jesus. It's not a moral question. It's not a religious question. Now, I want to be clear. Judaism, what it proclaimed was true. Christianity, what it proclaims is true. But if your desire is to have a relationship with God, that's not done through church involvement or religious involvement. That's done through Jesus, and that was a problem. That was a problem for the Jewish religious leaders. Romans 3 says that the purpose of Judaism was to prove that religion doesn't save. How about that? Remember we read it last week. Romans 3.18, the purpose of the law, the reason it was given, is to show that man is without excuses to show that nobody can be made right with God, that everybody falls short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3 says, that we are made right with God outside of the parameters of the law. We are made right with God when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And so first and foremost, I want to remind you here this morning that according to the Scriptures, according to God, the Gospel says that you can be saved even if you're not a Baptist. I know that's shocking, isn't it? You can be saved even if you're not a Jew. In fact, I'd like to turn it on its face and say that just because you're an Assemblies of God member or just because you're a Lutheran or just because you were baptized in the Methodist church as an infant or because you're Jewish by alignment or genetics does not make you the child of God. What makes you the child of God is realizing you are a sinner and your only hope is found in Jesus. And then all of that is secondary. The religious activity. It is as a result of being a born again that you are drawn into the family of God, needing to be encouraged and reminded that no matter what anybody says out there, the Word of God is final authoritative. This is truth. This is why we have to work hard. And I, I just, I just want to say something to those of you who come to Carpenter's Way. I know it's hard work. I know that sometimes you just want to turn on TV, televangelist, TVN, and just, oh, I just wish everything they said was true. I just want you to know it still doesn't make it true. You can eat cake every day. Remember Bill Cosby's show? So many of us grew up. Now you know my age in the 80s. There was one episode that still rings true in my heart today. Remember uh, Mrs. Cosby's out of town, and so Bill Cosby's feeding the kids. Remember they have breakfast? You guys remember this one? And he doesn't want to cook him breakfast. He doesn't want to do all the work, and he looks on the counter, and there's chocolate cake. Remember that? And he goes, what's in chocolate cake? Well, there's eggs. And there's, there's, you know, flour. It's just like eating a big pancake. And he sings the song, you remember? Chocolate cake. Anyway, you don't want to hear me sing it. But the bottom line is the chocolate cake may fill your stomach, but if you eat it for three meals a day, as much as it pleases your, your jaw, it will rot your heart. You may like the things that tickle your ears. But the truth is, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. He, he is greater as he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is our war. And that means we have to be disciplined, constrained people who focus not on the laws of God, but on God himself. That's why we have this up here. Because this is bigger than this. You can know truth from God's word on your own, and it is our job to drive you back to God's word. 
Every song we sing, every lesson we have, every time we take our kids to camp, every time it's to drive them back into the Word of God so that they learn to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit so they will follow God. Because I'd like to say that I think that's what's been missing for the past maybe 80 years in the church. We listen to people tell us what God wants for us instead of listen to them ourselves. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm a fan of the church. We need the church, but we need a church that knows the Word of God so we can encourage and spur each other on in love and good deeds. Why? Because if we don't, we end up like these religious leaders. Their expectation for the Messiah was that he would be a law enforcer, building up their religious brand of life and the rules. Obviously, that is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and save the lost of Gentile history as well as Jewish history. So Jesus entered Jerusalem and he goes immediately to these pools that John says have five porches where sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed hang out. In the context of this time in history, anyone chron uh, chronically ill or blind or lame or paralyzed was not only an outcast as a weak human, but was considered unclean and even sinful. They could not participate in the activities of the inner parts of the temple. I mean, I just want you to picture this for a second. I haven't taken a long time to describe it, but I want you to picture the smell, the misery. In fact, uh, uh, Josephus talks about this pool, and, and people didn't go there unless they were sick or had a sick person there. The pool was overrun by people who were in this uh, re uh, repulsive state. It must have smelled. It must have been horrific. But that's where our Lord went first. On this trip to celebrate this holy day in Jerusalem, Jesus began by going where the sick, lame, blind, and paralyzed were. Why? Because he had ministry to do there. Isaiah 35 tells us that this behavior was important because it tells us that when the Messiah would come, written 800 years before Christ came, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer, and those who cannot speak will shout and sing to fulfill specific prophecy, which was supposed to be a signpost. Okay, take a breath. I know I'm talking fast this morning. That's because I have more notes than time. Jesus' miraculous activities were actually supposed to be a sign. They were like God had already sent John the Baptist to proclaim. He was called a herald of Jesus' coming. But another herald of Jesus' coming was the things that he did. You remember this because you know one every Christmas we sing about it. We sing about Emmanuel being born and put in a manger, right? Well, the manger wrapped in, a, in cloths lying in a manger, that's a signpost to the shepherds, right? The angels went and said, you will find him lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Well, there were other signposts to watch for, and Isaiah 35 tells us that he would heal the sick. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, and every Jew, and I know that you know this because I tell you all the time, but every Jew growing up in Hebrew culture went to Hebrew school for the first few years of their life. They studied the Old Testament at every synagogue reading, which they went to once a week. Every synagogue, there was a reading of the prophets as well of, as, as the history books. The reason that's significant is because the prophets pointed towards the coming of Messiah. And what they should have been looking for is somebody who could heal the sick, somebody who would set the captive free, somebody who would proclaim that through his stripes they would be healed. But that's not who they were looking for. There's a second thing I want to note here, and that is if we're here to discover who this man really was, it's important to note that there are no untouchables to God. You really want to know who this Jesus was? So far in our look at his life, a year into his ministry, that's a third of the way through, we have watched him spend an afternoon with a Samaritan woman at the well, and he had to send his disciples away because they didn't want to spend time with her. 
We have seen him then go into a Samaritan village where he has to spend several days. We saw him call a Jewish tax collector to be in his inner circle. We have seen him have dinner with, an unacce- with unacceptable sinners and Matthew's friends. And now this. And to keep things real, to keep it honest, though, that's a common thing you hear all the time. I want you to know, though, Jesus didn't hate the rich or the religious either. You get a feeling today that Jesus only loves the broken. Let me be clear. Jesus hung out often with the leaders of the Jewish religion. He participated, as I already mentioned, in the Jewish activities of his day, but he also spent a lot of time with those considered unclean and sinful and offensive and and gross. Why? Because of Romans 5.8. God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. It's that last line. While we were still sinners. Jesus did not come for the moral or the religious. He came for anybody who realizes they're a sinner and in trouble if their sin has not been removed. This is super important. The sick and sinful as well as the rich and religious are sinners and need saving. If you live in Crown Colony, start your ministry with your neighbors. Go over for wine and cheese. If you live in North Side of Lovekin, Start with your neighbors, feed them, clothe them, and then go to Crown. And Crown, then go to North Lovekin. But Jesus didn't come for one group. He came for every group. And that's being missed today. I want you to know that Jesus loves the rich. Are they harder to reach? He said they were. But he loves the rich as well as the poor. He loves the healthy as well as the sick. Jesus did not come to make our lives easy. He came to save us for eternity, to make us adoptable so that we could be in relationship with God. Jesus came for all, the whole world. He didn't come for the Jewish religious leader or the social justice warrior or even to be uh, as a moralist or even someone who simply wanted to heal the sick. He came to seek and save the lost. The saddest part of the story of Jesus' life, the verse, I think one of the saddest is the end of last week's message, is Luke 5.39. No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. That was the problem with the Jewish religious leaders. You're fixing to see that in this story, both this week and next week, this week by a sick man, next week by the religious leaders, that they were very content with the old wine because they weren't worried about their souls. They just wanted to be Jewish. Back to our story. John 5, verse 5. One of the men lying there by the pool surrounded by other sick folks had been sick for 38 years. Wrap your minds around that. When Jesus saw him and knew he'd been ill for that long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I'd like to put down, okay, the Lord is gracious to me, but I think that's one of the dumbest questions in the New Testament. But he asked it for a reason. I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Now, let me explain that to you. Um, This may shock your Sunday school lessons that you grew up with hearing about this, but there is nowhere in Scripture where God promises to stir up the pool of Bethesda and heal people. This is is a local tradition to the best of our knowledge, and those hovering around the pools, including this man, believed that periodically an angel of God would come, stir the water up, and when that happened, first one in the pool got healed. Does that sound like God to you? I mean, it's it's like a raffle. Whether true or not, though, the only hope in the mind of this sick man was a silly superstition that he couldn't seem to have work in his favor. Please note, 
This is really important. The other idea that's falsely taught that Jesus came just to heal everybody is not seen in the story. Because Jesus walks by what is probably hundreds of sick people to go meet with the one. This one guy, he doesn't heal them. There are places that we'll get to in the story of Jesus, in the Gospels, where he feeds a whole crowd. Or he heals, he goes to the city healing all the sick. You're going to see that. But that is not most of the healings Jesus does. Jesus walks over sick people to get to this one guy. Why? Because Jesus is on mission. He is, he is, he's got an angle, a point, and he is about to open a discussion that he's going to finish. This was on his appointment calendar because something needed to be seen and understood by the people in Jesus' day, by this man, by those in the temple in next week's message, and by us. This lesson, this thing Jesus wants us to know, it began with that strange question that Jesus asked this guy who'd been sick for 38 years. You really want to get well? Now, I can't tell you for sure that I understand why he asked that question, but I actually think that what Jesus might have been asking him that day is, about two different kinds of healing Jesus asked. Jesus offers more than physical healing. Aren't you glad? Jesus offers spiritual healing. And Isaiah the prophet talked about that as well. Isaiah the prophet said that it was through his stripes we'll be healed. There's a lot of people in Christendom today that walk around claiming that so that if you have a sore on your nose, God will take it away because of his death on the cross. Just claim the blood on your nose. That is not what he's talking about. How do I know that? Because it doesn't work. We can claim things all day. We can claim things, but if they don't manifest themselves based upon promises of Scripture, it's probably us that don't understand the promises of Scripture. What Jesus Christ offered to anyone and everyone 100% of the time is spiritual healing if they wanted it. Anybody who asks gets it. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world, not just the Jews, not just Americans, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him, if you call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10 says, you will be saved. That's not true about asking God to heal you. Many of you, every one of you at one point or another has asked God to solve a problem that you have and he doesn't solve it for you the way you like it. That doesn't mean you lack faith. That means God has another purpose for you. We set our path. He sets our steps. Paul is an example of this. He had some besetting thing on his body that he prayed over and over that God would remove. And Paul says in Romans, God chose not to remove it. Was Paul not a man of faith? Of course he was. This guy is being asked, would you like to get well? Absolutely, but nobody throws me in the water, so I'm still here sick. Jesus, I believe, is offering a spiritual healing. This man wanted physical healing. No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old wine is just fine, they say. Keep that in mind. Again, I can't promise you that that's what Jesus is asking, but look at what the man responds. Verse 7, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else gets in there ahead of me. In this man's mind, his only problem is his physical sickness. In this man's mind, his only cure is that water and superstition. Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking. Unfortunately for much of Christendom today, this is where we stop and we start talking about how this man got healed by Jesus' work. Because we don't understand that Jesus doesn't want you well all the time. Everybody in this room, unless the Lord returns, is going to die at some point. There has never been a faith healer who survived this life. Not in the history of humanity. Everybody dies. But not everybody has to stay dead. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. This world, Satan wants you to believe in YOLO. You only live once. Jesus wants you to understand that you will live twice. And you can really live. I have come so that they can have life to the fullest. Not easiest, but to the fullest is what he offers. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed and he rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking. How amazing is that? Can you imagine seeing that? Don't you wish Jesus would walk up to you right now and heal that thing or issue you've got? We all do. The story isn't done. Because the story really isn't about, a, about Jesus making a guy who's sick well. Verse 9, the second half. This miracle happened on the Sabbath. Very interesting statement. You'll find out in coming weeks why. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, please take note of that, he was cured. John wants us to understand that this guy is healed. You want to know what kind of people these religious leaders are? They know that for 38 years this guy's been sick. Why? Because these people had to go to him to be cast out of the city. They know this guy. 38 years. Jerusalem is not the big city we think it is. It swells during holy days. Otherwise, it's about the size of Tyler. People know each other, especially if they were sick. What do they say to the man? You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. How messed up are they? That's incredible. These are the same leaders who had sent those religious spies to hassle Jesus in Galilee that we've been talking about in recent weeks. Just to keep things clear, this guy is tragically ill for 38 years. They would have known this guy. And there is no sign that they were even impressed that he's well or even compassionate or even excited or even have any joy in this guy's healing. Their response is, how dare you walk or work on the Sabbath? How dare you break our rules? Let me give you some history. When God created the earth, it's recorded in Genesis 1 that on the seventh day, he rested. The Hebrew word for rest is Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. That's what it is. It is stated that all the Jews were to rest from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday for their own good to rest or to Sabbath. Somewhere, you're going to like this, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Pharisees decided to expand the Sabbath law by adding 39 more categories of unpermitted activity along with a number of tedious regulations. These became part of the traditional teachings of the rabbis and then, uh, who were then instructed to enforce them upon their flocks. I'd like to read you one of the Sabbath rulings. If a man removes his fingernails by means of his nails or his teeth, and so too if he, if he pulled out the hair of his head or his mustache or his beard, and so too if a woman is, uh, dresses her hair or paints her eyelids or reddens her face, such a one, Rabbi Eleazar, declares liable to, the, to do a sin offering. All right, that sounds like King James Version speak for this. If a man bites his nails on the Sabbath or a woman combs her hair or puts any makeup on, it is off to the temple with you where you have to offer an atoning sacrifice. The Sabbath rules became a point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the ministry, uh, and they argue with him. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus will tell the Pharisees that the Sabbath was not made for man, or, or the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, I gave you these laws to build you up, not to tear you down. The, they are not the religion. It's not the laws that make you holy. The reason the Pharisees did not come to learn from Jesus when he was walking, the reason the spies weren't interested in his teachings and his activities, the reason that they really didn't ask him sincere questions was because they came to the Messiah to evaluate whether or not he fit their agenda. To be clear, the God of the Pharisees was the law. And if Jehovah God, 
doesn't fit into their agenda, he's a problem. As we get later into the story, you're going to read in John that the religious leaders, the people in the synagogue, knew that he was actually the Messiah, the sent one from God. Yet for fear of being cast out of the temple, they refused to worship him. They would rather go to hell than not worship at all. Wow. Judaism had made obedience to the law their God. So God was no longer necessary or even wanted if he didn't fit their agenda. Let that sink in. Since the law had become the God of the Jews, Jesus was a problem because he told people how to be saved outside of the law. The Jews were not concerned about salvation or even a relationship with the Father if it came outside of the law. The law our newly healed man broke in John 5 was the Pharisaical law that taught, quote, if a man moved anything from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath, he deserved to be stoned to death. That's a direct reading of the false law. Now pay attention. Because we're getting to the interesting part. All of that is to build up to this. This healed guy, realizing that he's in trouble, responds to the accusatory Pharisees. Remember, where we ended our story was they start questioning him. You know, why are you walking on the Sabbath? The Pharisees don't know at this point that Jesus healed this guy. They just know he's walking on the Sabbath and carrying his mat. And they question him. Why are you walking? How can you break the law? They don't celebrate his healing. They're angry that he broke the law. The man in verse 11 says, the man who healed me told me, pick up my mat and walk. Okay, now I understand this is the Bible and we don't like to read it like this, but when you go to one of your sons and you say, why do you have chocolate all over his face? He says, my brother told me it was okay to eat that. Do do they not do that in your home? My kids didn't do that because they're perfect. Do your kids do that? Thank you. You've got, you got to wake up. I know, I, I know I'm giving you a lot of information this morning, but stick with me because this is really scary. What happens in this story is super scary. This guy responds to the Pharisees not like the other guy. Remember, there's a guy who's blind from birth that Jesus is going to heal. That's coming up. That's another story that we're soon to read. And that guy actually stands up against them, stands up for righteousness, says, uh, and when they're questioning him, who is this Jesus guy? Are you one of his disciples? And he goes, look, I don't know if he's God or Satan. All I know is I was blind, and now I see, oh, yeah, I'm following him. Remember that? This guy goes, I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is, but it's his fault. I wouldn't have walked. I'd have laid there at that pool all day, but he healed me. What was I going to do? It stunk. I mean, that's what's going on here. I was just doing what I was told. Don't blame me. Verse 12. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. Jesus rocks, okay? Just, just, just. I know that we've got him in a little box, on, in, you know, and he wears that blue stash. But Jesus is setting up a conversation that we're going to get to next week. Be here next week or watch online. Jesus is setting this up. He's about to explain in the temple on a holy holiday who he is. And this is setting that up. But before we get there, there's a much more personal thing that we've got to get to. The Pharisees didn't know who had healed this guy. This is what life had become like under the Jewish religious leaders. You realize that God gave them the law to take care of their needs as an expression of his love for them, and they turned this gift into a burden. Boy, does that sound familiar? That's why some of you are at Carpenter's Way. Many of us grew up in the church under under legalism. Well, what's that joke? Um, Let's see. What is this like? What what do you call two Baptists in a bar? Huh? Strangers. That's exactly right. 
Uh, I think it's funny because I grew up in a church that taught we shouldn't go to movies. That just meant we drove 45 minutes to a movie theater. You know, when I moved here and Lovkin was a dry county, I heard about a lot of deacons who liked to drink wine, but they were against drinking. In case you're not clear, that's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly what this is. This guy, this cured guy, it appears to be the case where he's healed, but he doesn't really care about the healer. He doesn't want a relationship with him. I mean, later in our study in Jesus' life, we're going to meet that blind guy. He was grateful. He said he was going to follow Jesus. This guy is going, I don't know. I was just told to do this. And he walked off. Look at the next verse, verse 14. But afterward, okay, so after all this, this is the very next thing. Jesus found him in the temple. What's interesting is the Greek word here infers that Jesus went seeking him. Seek, remember, he came to seek and save that which is lost. So you got this guy, and I'm going to make some assumptions here. So this is Mark's opinion. But this guy is healed. He's confronted by the Pharisees. So what he does next is he wants to probably join his family at the holy days. He wants to go to the temple and be declared clean. They can see he's clean. So you've got to go to the temple grounds for all of that to happen so you can participate in social life again. So he goes to the temple. Jesus has walked off. Now Jesus goes into the temple and he finds this guy. He finds this guy. And Jesus says, now you're well. So stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. That is a weird verse for those of us who don't, uh, you know, I, well, I'm not going to get into all the things it doesn't mean, but let me tell you what Jesus is talking about. Jesus goes up to a guy who has rejected him as the healer of his salvation, who is satisfied with physical healing, and he warns him, you might be healed right now, but if you don't turn your life around, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't really understand that sin needs to be forgiven, something worse is going to happen. We call that judgment. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now get this. This guy just turned on Jesus. He just, he just threw Jesus under the mat. He's not a follower. And what does Jesus do? Jesus seeks him out. And I know it sounds angry because I'm intense, but that's not Jesus' attitude. Jesus is actually going to warn this guy, you don't have to die in your sins. I will make you well, really, really, really well. When Jesus comes and offers life to people, he's not condemning them. They're already condemned, John 3.17 says. They're already condemned. The reason Jesus didn't come and walk up and down the roads and just slap people is because they're already on their way to hell. People don't understand that. You don't choose heaven or hell. You're going to hell. You are in going to the place where God is not. That's eternity. That's where place created for the devil and his angels. We're all on the highway to hell. It is Jesus, and it's not just an ACDC song. We are, though, invited to join Led Zeppelin on the stairway to heaven. Oh, that was good. I just thought of that. <laughs> ah. Woo, feeling good. Let's close it. Thank you. <laughs> if you're visiting Carpenter's Way, it's like this every week, okay? But it's true. People say, how can, a, how can a loving God send people to hell? A loving God sent his son, so nobody has to go to hell. That's the fact. And this guy didn't want heaven. He didn't want God. He didn't want a relationship. He just wanted to be well. Now check your heart. We've got people making billions of dollars in the church today, buying jets because they travel the globe promising people a better life. Everybody wants to live the moment. That's why we have a drug problem in our country. That's why people commit adultery, because you want pleasure in the moment. That's why Christians act on same-sex attraction, because I want to feel good right now. I'll worry about heaven and hell later. I'm here to tell you that by His stripes you can be healed. The only way 
for you to have victory over the temptation is a personal relationship with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's indwelling power. It does not mean you don't desire to sin. It means you have the power not to. The Holy Spirit who lives within you is, ca is called the same power that resurrected Christ. The problem with this guy is though his body was working, he was still on his way to death. And my fear is that too many of us are, are selling Christianity as a way to live on. And I'm here to tell you, you're going to die, but there's hope beyond the grave. There's hope in Jesus. And even if you find a doctor to cure you of cancer, the problem is it will be something else. We joke together as a church about Lazarus. He's got to be the most burned guy in the New Testament because while we'll die once, he had to die twice. That kind of stinks. Oh, it tells us a week later that Lazarus is sitting in Mary and Martha's house and everybody's coming to see Jesus because he's eating with them. And it doesn't say that Lazarus says anything because I think he's pouted. I think he's sitting in the corner going, this food is good, but I can't believe I have to go through this again. What's it going to be, a stroke next time? I mean, no, nobody wants to die. Just, just make it clear. Nobody wants to die. If you want to die, you need to see a shrink. Nobody's looking forward to walking through that door. But boy, on the other side of that door, there's great joy for us. I'm looking forward to what comes next. I'm not looking forward to the journey to get there. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to trust the Lord for it. Please understand that the fear of, of, li uh, of living a bad life, Satan will use to keep you from knowing him. Christians, the most important things you can do in your kid's life is not make sure they go to prom in the right dress. You make sure they know Jesus. Please. If you give them everything they want that makes them happy, they will only learn that life can be enough. Teach them the truth. There's never enough. This guy didn't learn it. How do you know that, Pastor? Look at his response after Jesus confronts him. Now you're well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Verse 15, then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Okay, in, in Mark Wilkie's Bible, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of, of writing my, my own translation. We're going we're gonna to get rid of translation because I'm going to go for the English. I added, this guy's a real jerk. Now, God knew what he was doing, but you understand what he's doing, right? Okay, I, want you to, I want you to dramatize this in your mind. Jesus finds this guy and says, hey, man, so you're healed. Stop sinning. Repent. Turn from your sin or something worse is going to happen to you. And you know what his response is? Hold on just a second. You stay right there. That's the guy. Matthew 16, 26. Kevin, did I give you that? Look at the scripture. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, even his health, and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Pharisees, it was their religion, their piety. They'd rather have Judaism than Jesus. Let me say it again. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, John the Baptist's disciples would rather have the law than Jesus. For the healed man, it was physical health. His standing in the eyes of the Pharisees, their religious party, he would have or ha rather have those things than be a follower of Jesus. What about you? The story isn't over. In fact, the purpose for Jesus healing this guy is going to come in next week's message. The very next verse says that the, that the Pharisees and religious leaders immediately begin to harass Jesus. It's a, it's a great lesson next week. It's, you can read it if, if you can't wait. 
But Jesus is going to identify himself to them. But this morning, I want to end with this question. I remember it from when I was in high school. I remember my youth pastor bringing a speaker, and he asked me this question. If Satan was to sue you for peace, what would he have to give you in order for you to give in? In other words, his question to me was, Mark, if Satan owned everything, how much would he have to give you in order for you to give up God? Or to take him lightly? There's a story um, of a, and I'm going to be very, I'm going to be careful with my wording, so pay attention because you'll, adults, you'll understand what I'm talking about. There's a businessman who goes and he travels and he's sitting in a, having dinner in a bar in the hotel lobby and there's an attractive young lady there and they are looking at each other as he eats his meal and he works his way over to her and he writes down on a note, um, would you enjoy the rest of the evening with me if I gave you a million dollars? And she giggled and looked shocked, and she said, okay. And he said, how about five? And she slapped him and said, what kind of girl do you think I am? And he said, we've already identified what kind of girl you are. The question is, how much will it cost me? That is what Satan is asking you. What is the profit of man or a woman to forfeit his soul? What, what will he have to give you? Teenager, I ask you that question. What will Satan have to give you? The right girlfriend? The right car? Men and women, a better wife, a better spouse, uh, better health. I mean, the thing is that every one of us in this room, even if we're children of God, are tempted with this. I promise God, if you just give me 10 more years, if you just give me a better job, I will give away 40% of my income to you. You know what God asks of you. Everything. Why haven't we given it up to him? Really, I'm serious. It's everything. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, pick up your cross. That's the Jesus of the Scripture. I'm not sugarcoating it. You see it right here. You see a guy who's healed who turns him in. He doesn't want to talk to this guy anymore. This healed guy doesn't want to talk with Jesus, so he gets him in a different discussion that we'll get into next week. What about us? I know it's hard to study the Scriptures and go, man, that's, that's tough stuff, but... All Jesus is asking for is everything. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? It's actually the easiest thing to ask for because it encompasses everything. I have to give him you. You have to give him me. Your spouse, your kids, your job, your relationship with your neighbors, the political system, illegals, refugees, jihadists. All of it. Well, I don't want to give him everything. What if he puts me in jihadi jail? You can set your path, but he will set your steps. He might put you in jihadi jail. Just, just to be clear, let, let me be really practical in our culture. If you have same-sex attraction, I'm not going to argue whether that's natural or not. I'm just going to tell you, you can't act on it. If you want to sleep with somebody else's wife, you may have that attraction. I'm not going to argue whether it's real or not. I'm just going to tell you, if you're a child of God being owned by God, you can't act on it. Well, it's easy for you to say. You don't know me. Not really, because I don't get up here every week and tell you my sin. I'll tell you some of my sins. But my battle with God is no easier than yours. And this is what we do to avoid real questions. See, God is asking you a question today. 
Because every one of us in this room who are the children of God and everyone on the internet knows what I'm saying because every one of us knows what we're not giving to God. Everybody has a thing. Everybody has a thing. Everybody's got a thing. That makes us just like this guy. We don't know what happens to this guy after this. I hope he turns around and says, oops, sorry. I hope he listens to the discussion we're going to study next week, but we don't know that. What I do know is it's a pretty cool story for us to think about this week. I've been thinking about it this week. I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning and I read Jeremiah because I got behind in my reading for the year. Some of you are doing it with me. And uh, somebody asked me, Connie asked me, do I feel like Jeremiah? No, I feel like one of the Jews he's talking to. Why do I worry? Why do I fret? Why do I long for things that are not mine? Because I still think it's all about me. So I spent some time this morning in the dark telling God, I'm sorry for forgetting it's all about him. And he said, that's okay, Mark. Just pick up your cross and follow me now. <laughs> all right, it's as easy as that, Jesus. I went first, Mark. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to be quiet for a moment to give you a chance to talk with your father. And I want to tell you a couple things. With your eyes closed and your head bowed, I want you to know that just like he chased that guy into the tabernacle, he's chasing you into the church this morning. And he's telling you, I love you. So give it up to me now. Whatever that thing is, and it may be everything, would you just give it to him right now? See yourself setting it at his feet. Thank him for his grace. Pick up your cross and follow. Lord Jesus, speak to your children. And for those that do not know you, may today be the day that they are healed by your strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes. If you're visiting with us, I would love to shake your hand. If you want to pray, if you want to argue, I'm up here. That's what I do for a living. Have a great Sunday.